Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Tuesday the 27th of October. Today, pressure grows on the police over their use of databases to store information on protesters, including the comedian Mark Thomas. At once, it redefines how we see protest. But it also has immense comic you know, possibilities. Also today, the UN War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague says Radovan Karadzic will go on trial today, after yesterday's uproar at the Bosnian Serb leader's no-show. When the South Korean judge adjourned the trial after a mere 15 minutes, there were howls of outrage and protest and gasps of incredulity. And Fidel Castro's sister reveals how she worked with the CIA in Cuba. She's been sitting on this revelation for all these decades and she only now finally came out, confided to the, the, her biographer um, relatively recently. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, the news headlines with Bill Overton. Gordon Brown's asked two of his most senior civil servants to lobby discreetly for Tony Blair to become Europe's new president. John Cunliffe, the Prime Minister's most senior Europe adviser, and Kim Darroch, Britain's EU ambassador, are now taking soundings at senior levels. It's as the former PM's being warned he'll lose his chance unless he openly declares his interest and launches a dynamic campaign. Tentative talks on the position will be held at the EU summit this week amid signs the Czech Republic will ratify the Lisbon Treaty, which then establishes the new post. Chief constables will be forced to justify the legality of recording law-abiding protesters on secret nationwide databases. The government's information commissioner, Christopher Graham, says he's genuinely concerned about the ever-increasing amount of personal data held by police. It's after The Guardian revealed how forces have developed a covert apparatus to monitor people they consider domestic extremists, a term which has no legal basis. Now, the Metropolitan Police's assistant commissioner, Chris Allison, who's in overall charge of the database, has admitted his force has been forced to review its IT systems. In a moment, we'll be talking to a comedian who's found himself on that list. The FBI says it's rescued 52 children from prostitution rings during nationwide raids that have led to nearly 700 arrests. People have been detained in 36 cities after a surveillance operation of children sold for sex on the internet, in casinos and at truck stops. About 1,600 officers were involved in the three-day operation. Most of the children rescued were teenage girls, one youngster just 10 years old. The number of babies diagnosed with Down syndrome has risen sharply in the last 20 years, largely due to women delaying motherhood. But research shows the number of babies born with the condition has remained fairly static over the same period due to improved screening and subsequent abortions. The studies found the risk of having a baby with Down syndrome is 1 in 940 for a woman aged 30. But by age 40, the risk rises to 1 in 85. Credit card companies have been warned to get their act together as tough new rules are brought forward. The government consultations designed to stop borrowers being landed with unsustainable debts. Credit and store card firms usually make consumers pay off the cheapest debt first, while more expensive debt, such as cash withdrawn on a credit card, is left until last. One of the plans is to swap that around. Here's what the papers are saying. The Times reports on comments from Lord Stern, a leading authority on climate change, who says people need to give up meat if we're to save the planet. According to The Telegraph, employers could soon be checked against the government's anti-paedophile database, even if they have little contact with children. The paper also looks at how academics are claiming there's an urban myth over date-rape drugs. 
And it's just down to women who are unwilling to accept that they had too much alcohol. There's a picture of Paul Haggis, the Oscar-winning filmmaker on the front of The Independent, as he resigns from the Church of Scientology. He's furious with what he calls the organisation's hate-filled and bigoted opposition to gay marriage. The FT reports on how McDonald's is pulling out of Iceland by closing its three restaurants in the crisis-hit country. The fast food company says it has no plans to return. Britain gets a 70-degree Indian summer, is the headline in The Express. As experts predict, Britain will be basking one of the warmest late October weeks on record. In its back pages, former England defender Sol Campbell has been told he must agree to a five-year gagging order by Notts County before they let him continue his career. The Mail claims Sir Alex Ferguson's admitted he was wrong to brand referee Alan Wiley unfit by pleading guilty to an FA charge of improper conduct. Swine blue is the pun of the day in the mirror. Uh, following an outbreak of H1N1 at Blackburn, boss Sam Allardyce insists Chelsea must blame the Premier League if any of their big stars now go down with the bug. There's more on today's stories and breaking news at guardian.co.uk. The police must explain why they are holding the personal details of lawful protesters on nationwide intelligence databases. That's what Christopher Graham, the Information Commissioner, tells The Guardian today. Well, one of the people whose name is on a secret database is the comedian Mark Thomas. I asked him how it feels to be labelled a domestic extremist. I feel extremely flattered. Um, and as I said in the article, I'm actually thinking of using it as a, as a quote, using the Metropolitan Police definition of someone who might instigate disorder on a, on, I think that would look great on a poster, underneath the sort of obligatory time-out review and the kind of four stars, the Scotsman, it would just have instigates disorder, the Met Police. Um, I mean, on one hand, it's very funny, you know, because we sort of know that it goes on and it's very flattering and you think they are sort of a little bit you know, the presentation of it, the very word domestic extremist is a really interesting, two words, a really interesting two words, because at once it redefines how we see protest. But it also has immense comic, you know, possibilities, because the idea, you know, how very British, a domestic extremist, it sounds very homely. Do you know what I mean? It sounds like sort of anarchists with slippers, sort of <laughs> fuck the state and pass the jam kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I think it has got... The very word at once is silly, but it's also interesting because what it does is it means that actually the protesters are now viewed as domestic extremists. And the very word extremist therefore means they are not like us, they are a threat. And at this point, at best, protesters are regarded as a problem, and at worst, they're regarded as the enemy. And in those situations, that's how you view protest. So what you suddenly find is that actually the police are in this situation where the very way in which they view protest is um, being defined by the language and the surveillance teams. So the fact that we have a legal right to protest, the fact that it's the cornerstone of democracy, that all our rights were won through protest and campaigning, and only at the end of it, you know, where Parliament comes in and rubber stamps it, the police ignore that. These things that have gently sort of brushed aside, or brusquely brushed aside, and what we end up with is, is you end up with situations like the G20 when protest, you know, someone's rights are just completely violated. The police say that if you're on a database, you shouldn't worry at all. That's rather wonderful. It's, 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 just a, it's just a hop, skip and a jump away from those with nothing to hide have nothing to fear. It's just one of those, uh, you shouldn't worry if you're on a database. Well, we should worry if we're on a database. Um, one, it's our right to find out 
You know, who's collating information about us? Why are they collating it? What is the basis for it? Um, we, we need to find out how actually it's going to, would it affect um, you know, a criminal records uh, check uh, if you have an advanced uh, a criminal records check um, or enhanced or whatever the phrase is? You know, is it going to show up there? We need to find out these things. We need to know who's got oversight of it. The police have also said when they say you shouldn't worry about, you know, about it if, if you've turned up on one of these databases. They've also said you could turn up on one of these databases if you turn up at a protest. So the very, very fact that you're at a demonstration is enough for you to be, end up on these files. I think that's extremely worrying. Because a lot of people think if the police are targeting people, it must be up to something illegal. Absolutely. That's the wonderful thing about it. Because if they use the phrase, you know, if they say, right, we're going to target these people, immediately you think, oh, what are they up to? What have they done? They're up to no good. And of course, I think it's worth always pointing out that protest is legal. That's the point. But if you suddenly go, ah, well, we're, we're targeting them, then what you end up with is people have a perception that actually that something is going on here, that there is, there's no smoke without fire, that the police are doing it for a reason. And they've, you know, quite, they've quite expressly said that's not necessarily the case. Mark Thomas, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash UK. Also on The Guardian's website today. This is Ros Taylor, Deputy Editor of Comment is Free at The Guardian. We've got a couple of fantastic pieces coming up today. One by Mehdi Hassan. He says we've won the war in Afghanistan because we've driven out Al-Qaeda and the time is right to go into Pakistan. The other piece I highly recommend is by Rowena Davis. She's been looking into the strange case of the Cambridge Tab, Cambridge University's tabloid online newspaper and a very dubious publication it is too. All that today on guardian.co.uk slash comment is free. The trial of the Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic gets underway today, with or without the presence of the accused. Karadzic is charged with genocide for the worst mass murders in Europe since the Nazis. But yesterday he called the bluff of the special UN war crimes tribunal by boycotting the opening of his trial. Europe editor Ian Trainer is in The Hague. The gallery to the chamber of which you, you watch the proceedings through, uh, from a gallery through bulletproof glass and you listen to the proceedings on headphones, you're not allowed actually into the courtroom, but uh, when the South Korean judge announced, uh, adjourned uh, the Karajic trial after a mere 15 minutes, there were howls of outrage and protest and gasps of incredulity from the dozens of uh, mainly elderly women victims of the of the crimes in Bosnia who travelled all the way from Sarajevo in the hope of seeing uh, Radovan Karadzic finally in the dock. We go there to raise our voice again, to tell Europe that we are still here waiting for the truth and asking for justice. The fact that Karadzic may not show up shows once again that a criminal has all the rights, while victims cannot even find the bones of their children. Given the fact that the biggest war criminal is facing justice now, I think it's time to condemn the crime itself, committed in the whole of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, I've never seen scenes like this at any of the trials, including that of uh, people, you know, big shots like Slobodan Milosevic, the former Serbian leader, or any of the other Bosnian characters. Um, and afterwards, uh, well, there must have been about up to 200, 150 to 200, mainly women, who packed into 
a hall to listen to court officials uh, trying to placate them and reassure them and promise them that he would be put on trial and he would be brought into the dock. Is there already a danger that this UN war crimes tribunal will go the same way as the trial of Slobodan Milosevic? Well, that fundamentally depends on on the health of the accused. Of course, Milosevic managed to drag his trial out for four years and and died in custody before it could be completed. Now, that was a a major blow to the credibility of the tribunal. They're trying to mitigate that possibility here by narrowing the charge sheet and reducing the the, the number of counts that Karajit faces. Milosevic, for example, uh, uh, faced 66 counts in his indictment. In the case of Karajit, it's 11. So to that extent, it should be a simpler case to prosecute and to get through. Besides, the judges are well aware of these shortcomings and the criticisms they've faced in the past. This is probably the last big trial, barring the arrest of um, Ratko Mladic, the wartime Serbian military commander in Bosnia. So there's a lot of pressure on the judges to get this one right. And the trial will get underway this week, with or without Karadzic in the court. Indeed, it will go ahead this afternoon. I mean, basically, the South Korean judge yesterday ordered Karadzic to show up today after he boycotted yesterday. I would say there was little likelihood that Karadzic will show up. However, in his absence, the case is to go ahead. In other words, the beginning of the trial, the the opening statement from the prosecution uh, will go ahead whether or not the accused is in the dock. Everything is recorded. The, The proceedings will be promptly relayed to the accused who sits in a cell just outside The Hague uh, so that it can be seen that he's been made aware of everything that's happened in the courtroom. Ian Trainer. My name's John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, meet Edward Vickerman, who's overcome dyslexia to become new teacher of the year. You'll see very few textbooks in the classroom. We we try to make sure that they've got access to as many different ways to learn as possible. But first, Juanita Castro, the younger sister of Fidel and Raul Castro, has revealed in a new book that she collaborated with the CIA. She's lived in exile in Miami since 1964, but she spied for the Americans while she was still in Cuba, hoping to undermine her brother's revolutionary government. Rory Carroll is our Latin American correspondent. Well, she's claiming that she was a CIA agent in the early 1960s while she was still based in Havana and that she was a spy for the CIA right in the heart of the Castro family. So it's a bit of a bombshell. She initially supported the revolution. She did. Um, When it triumphed in 1959, uh, she went out with these brigades into the countryside, building health clinics and trying to build up its social programs. And so she's very much a supporter. Uh, But then she fell out with Fidel and Raul Castro quite quickly afterwards by from around 1960, when they began executing opponents and cracking down on the media. And she said that for her that was a turning point, and that's when she began uh, sheltering opponents of the regime, and her career with the CIA took off from that. She um, has been based in Miami in exile since 1964, um, so her opposition to uh, Fidel and Raul Castro is, is, is well known, but not the collaboration with the CIA. Yes, this is new. Um, And in fact, she's been 
according to the author of the book of her biography, uh, she's been sitting on this revelation for all these decades, and she only now finally came out, confided to the, the her biographer um, relatively recently, um, and so they've hoarded this secret, if you like, as a great marketing tool, um, and so they had went through to, uh, some extreme security measures to avoid leaks of the book coming out. They had uh, the book sealed in crates and pallets, uh, very much like kind of Harry Potter style security measures. It's still a very long time ago. I mean, is it? Uh, does it present any damage now to the current Cuban regime, which is, of course, led by her brother Raúl? No, it doesn't really damage the the government. I, I don't think um, her opposition uh, to her brothers and to the government in Havana has been so well established over the last four decades that really it doesn't really change anything. Um, and also on, on the island itself, it's unlikely to really uh, rattle many people. Um, so far, there's been no immediate official reaction, um, and she's been gone so long, and her opposition to the brothers is, is so well known that I don't really think it's going to cause much of a stir on the island. One thing that it does suggest, though, is that the CIA. Uh, was not actually totally useless um, in terms of uh, their uh, their efforts to uh, to penetrate the regime because now the CIA of course is famous for having authored or uh, crafted about more than 600 failed plots to assassinate Fidel Castro and also uh, for having orchestrated the Bay of Pigs invasion fiasco so it turns out that now maybe the CIA was just not quite the useless uh, entity that we thought it was. Rory Carroll. Edward Vickerman is named as the outstanding new teacher of the year today. And he certainly is a teacher with a difference, as The Guardian's Martin Wainwright discovered. I'm in a very unusual classroom in Normanton uh, in West Yorkshire. It's unusual because on the whiteboard here, there's no writing at all. And the reason for that is that the teacher, Edward Vickerman, who's director of business studies and enterprise here at Freeston Business and Enterprise College, is dyslexic. Edward, can you, can you just tell me what this means in terms of the way you teach? You, you don't use writing on the whiteboard, what do you use? We try to use as much up-to-date technology as we can do. For example, you'll see that we've got a smart board in the classroom. The classroom's full of computers. In the classroom next door, when you go in, you'll see a role-play area uh, where we can adapt it so students can learn in alternative ways than simply having to write. You'll see very few textbooks in the classroom. We, we try to make sure that they, they've got access to as many different ways to learn as possible. Now, you're, you're very honest with them when they start off being taught by you, you say, look, I'm not going to write on the board because I'll spell things wrong and I don't want you to <laughs> do it wrong. Um, you've overcome incredible challenges to get to be a teacher. Can, can I just take you back and could you tell me how, how it worked out? Yeah, well, I, I didn't always have the best experience at school. Some teachers were amazing and some teachers were not as good as others. Um, and, and I found that my school that I went to um, helped me a lot by putting me onto alternative courses. For example, the BTEC programme, I did it with along, running alongside A-levels and went out to work for one day a week in a hotel. Uh, I always wanted to be a teacher, I wanted to be a primary school teacher but um, I was told that I couldn't do that by the training colleges. Uh, so I went to university and did hotel management and then went and found a training college that would take somebody with dyslexia. And, and it was the reason they, the, the other colleges said, sorry, we can't do this, was the dyslexia, was it? They just said, if you've got that condition, sorry, teaching, primary teaching's not on. Yeah, they said that I couldn't teach. That, in fact, they said that some of the high school training providers said that as well, that, that it wasn't possible for me to... To, to become a teacher because of my uh, because of my difficulties, uh, which was not true at all. It's not true. 
Now, there's some really interesting things that happen here at Freeston. As soon as you come into the lobby, there's a huge display of New York, and 42 of the students from here went over to New York this year, earlier this year, and you also have your own version of Dragon's Den, I understand, and, and, and you're also doing an apprentice selection. Are, are these things, you know, do you think you've thought those up partly because of the dyslexia, because you're all the time, you're looking of, you know, ways to interest them, ways to involve them? I like to think that, that we, we do things differently here, and I like to think that we, we can think differently, and I think that dyslexia has always allowed me to think differently and think outside the box. For example, we, we now engage students in primary schools with enterprise, and trips like uh, trips and visits, the school has always been engaged with business, but I think that we, we really becoming even more engaged with local businesses and international businesses now. So, yeah, I think it does. I think it gives me a unique perspective. I'm with a couple of um, Edward Vickerman students from year 10, um, Adam Brown and Christian Hartley. Um, and I'm just going to ask them, really, you know, what it is about uh, Mr Vickerman and his teaching um, that's caught attention. Um, Adam, Adam, what do you think of him? Well, uh, he's a great teacher and he makes, like, he makes, he makes learning easy for us, like, it's not all work, work. It's like you do bits of drama and things like this too. And it helps you. It gets st- sticks into your head easier than just learning from textbooks all the time. He, he strikes me, I've only just met him, you know, but as one of life's enthusiasts. Yeah. Is, is, does that come across? Uh, it's not just like, like Adam said, it's not just all from a textbook. It comes out with, it comes up with good ideas like, like Dragon's Den and The Apprentice and stuff. So it's easier to learn stuff. And he, he makes it funny. He makes it... Like he has a laugh with you, but it sticks in, and you learn everything that you could. I mean, you know, no, you're doing brilliantly. He, he's done, you know, he's dyslexic. So, yeah. so when he, if he tried to write on the board, he'd probably spell things wrong. Yeah. And he says that apparently when he starts off with new students. Is that, is that, do you think that wins him uh, support, as it were? Because it's quite unusual for a teacher, in my experience, to say, yeah. actually, I can't spell. But he is dyslexic. He don't go on about it though, like. He has a laugh with it as well, like if he makes a mistake on board. But he don't, he don't milk it, he don't, he don't make, it, make people feel sorry for him. No. So he just, and yeah, he just helps you all the time. And, uh, and if you, he can't make it work properly, but he'll try as hard as he can to make it work right. Martin Wainwright reporting. Phil Maynard and Andy Duckworth produced today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.